Well, if you don't mind grabbing a copy of God's Word and turning to Matthew 24, our text that we'll really be focusing on this morning is verses 29 through 31. Uh, if you don't have a copy of our Advent Guide, we'd encourage you to grab a copy. We still have plenty left. I hope that you're uh, taking the opportunity to read those with your families. There's 25 readings uh, that the author has uh, gathered together from the writings of J.C. Ryle. And uh, today's text, as well as the following Sundays in Advent, will be gathered from that day's reading. And uh, this was originally my idea, and at first I thought this was a good idea until I saw today's text, and I saw my passage that I had to teach on uh, and preach on before us this morning. But uh, I, I do believe that we can be encouraged by the word. Brother Rick posed a question last week. What shall we do in between the two Advents? What do we do between Jesus' first coming and, our, and his second coming? And really taking that question, what should we do in light of that day? Because that's what we're going to be looking at. The day that Christ returns. I've entitled this message, The Coming of the Son of Man. It's not a very uh, new or original title. It's probably the title that's above your passage in your English Bible there. But the coming of the Son of Man. When it comes to eschatology, which is the doctrine or the study of the end times, there are several views out there. And we're actually going to cover several of those views this morning. Uh, this will actually have a very different feel than, than many of the other sermons I've had the opportunity to preach because of the text that we're in. But hopefully we can go, go to the text and apply this as we consider the second coming of Christ. In regards to these differing views, there is one common ground when it comes to the fact that Christ will come again. Christ will come again. Our Baptist faith and message in Article 10 reads, God, in his own time and in his own way, will bring the world to its appropriate end. According to his promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. The dead will be raised and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. It doesn't matter where you land on your view of the end times. We can all agree that Christ is coming and there's a judgment. And if you're in Christ, praise God. If not, dear sinner, repent and believe. That's really what we're going to be looking at this morning. Our, our text, verses 29 through 31, there's four parts describing that glorious day. The first is the tribulation. We see that in verse 29, really the first part of verse 29. The second is the cosmos. We see that again in the latter part of verse 29. The third is the response from the tribes in verse 30, and then the uh, gathering of the elect 
and verse 31. I want to warn you in advance. I want you to put your eyes on a few texts this morning. So we're going to be flipping to several locations. So you might want to grab the bulletin or one of those envelopes in front of you to keep here in Matthew 24. But we're going to be flipping to several places along the way. Matthew 24 can be a challenging chapter. So as we look at this first event or this first part of that day, it says immediately after the tribulation of those days. That's our setting here. As I just mentioned, this is going to be a challenging passage to interpret, and it takes very careful attention. Listen to what one individual said of Matthew 24. He says, few chapters in the Bible have called forth more disagreement among interpreters than Matthew 24 and its parallels in Mark 13 and Luke 21. The history of the interpretation of this passage is immensely complex. Merry Christmas. So here we are, our setting. There are several different views that come in, uh, in play here, and we're going to look at those along the way. But the context is important. Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 is what's called the Olivet Discourse. Now, Jesus has just rebuked the religious leaders in chapters 23, made comments about the temple, and then walks to the Mount of Olives. The context, look with me at verse 1 and th through 3 of chapter 24. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all, the, all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's these three parts to this question that Jesus will be answering. The last two parts are very similar. So when will these things be? These things, the temple being destroyed. you got to remember in context, this is the central location for worship for the Jew. And it's a magnificent temple. The span and the, the, the area that it covers is, as you would have walked into Jerusalem, it would be at the highest place and you would see it and it's breathtaking. This is a very, very huge statement that Christ has made and probably just really nagged at the minds of the disciples. And so they asked, they asked him, when will this happen? And they assumed that when the temple is destroyed, it must be the end of the world. If Christ has allowed this to happen. So they posed this question with what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. That's what Jesus is answering in Matthew chapter 24. The problem though we have is to, because we got to ask a couple of questions. How much of this discourse is history? 
The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And then how much of this passage is future? Now, there are several opinions on how to handle this passage. The first, and probably the most dangerous view, is saying that everything in Matthew 24 is historical. Is historical. That'd be a very dangerous approach to the text because our passage clearly tells us of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Another view in interpreting this passage concludes that everything beginning in verse 4 on is all future events beyond the temple destruction. A third is that there's a double meaning in the events listed in Matthew 24, meaning some of this is historical and it has been accomplished, but it has another meaning and will be fulfilled again in the future. And the third or the fourth view would be that part of it is historical and part of it is future. I believe that's the best route to take this morning. But even at that, we come across some issues. We come across the issues. It's where does the history end and where does the future begin? And really, this is where you have your major views on end times. So first, we begin with the word tribulation. Tribulation. The word can sometimes have a broad meaning, such as suffering and persecution. Jesus actually uses it in a very broad sense in verse 9 of chapter 24. Look at what he says. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. So there's a very broad scope. Tribulation can encompass persecution and death. But it also can be used very narrow, in a narrow way. Look at verse 21 of chapter 24. Jesus says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, never will be. So we're looking and we're asking the question, what is the tribulation? I can't fully answer that for you this morning. Because this is such a complex passage, I'm going to give you four different views on the tribulation. Four different views on the tribulation and really go a lot broader than that and give you four different views of the end times in order for us to move through this passage. Before I jump in, I want to point out a couple of words. The first word would be millennium. Millennium. This refers to the 1,000-year the reign of Christ. We find that actually in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. This millennium is really where you find these different veins and different approaches to the interpretation of Matthew 24. So the millennium is, another, is a word that we need to know. Rapture is another one that you should know. Rapture. That's actually a word that you won't find in your English Bible. You can look up in your concordance, in your dictionary. Rapture is not there. Rapture comes from a, a translation of the Latin Bible, the Vulgate. And it's in reference to 1 Thessalonians 4.17 where it says, 
caught up. Caught up. Here's another place of disagreement amongst these positions. They disagree about the thousand-year reign of Christ, and they disagree about the rapture, when it will occur, what it will look like. Another point uh, to note in these different positions is Israel. Now, this is a very hot topic, right? I mean, our minds are on Israel right now. These different positions actually have different opinions about the nation of Israel. Some believe it's now the church has taken the place of Israel. Some believe that there will be a calling uh, and, and a, a great salvation amongst Jews. Uh, some believe that on the day that Christ returns, those living Jews will be saved and redeemed. There's different views on that as well. So this is just a, a base before we jump in. And here we go. We're doing it right now. First and foremost, the first view that I want to point out is the premillennial dispensationalist. That is a mouthful, and I will do my best to pronounce these as best as possible, but the premillennial dispensationalist. This is a very popular view amongst Baptists and many evangelicals, and that is for a particular purpose. In the late 1800s, there's a man by the name of John Nelson Darby that introduced this particular position, dispensational position. And it really gained traction in America, for at least, amongst evangelicals because of a study Bible. Maybe you've heard of it, the Schofield Study Bible, and also the Ryrie Study Bible. These are a position they take. Also, during the 1900s, many of your evangelical seminaries, such as Dallas Theological Seminary, right in our backyard, hold to a dispensational view. Now, dispensationalism is far broader than just end times, but it's really in this vein of thinking there has become this popular view of a premillennial dispensationalism. Okay, and so here is a couple of things about them. First, the premillennial dispensationalist believes that the, there is a secret rapture, a secret rapture that would actually be separate from Christ's second coming. There's proof text for that would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 13 on through 17. The, the premillennial dispensationalist also believes in the Great Tribulation, which spans seven years. They believe that the church, those that are living at that time, will be raptured before the seven years of Great Tribulation. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, we read it. Jesus says, for then there will be a Great Tribulation. They believe that is the, what's called the Great Tribulation of the day, seven years. From there, when it comes to Christ's reign, they believe in a literal 1,000-year reign. So, the church will be raptured. Christ will come after the seven years of tribulation. And when he comes the second time, he will establish his reign and authority over the earth, 
bringing back all believers to the earth with him and will reign for 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, Satan will be released because he's bound at the beginning. And at the end, there will be an apostasy and then the final judgment. This position is held by many reliable and, and godly men, just to name two, David Jeremiah and John MacArthur, both hold to a premillennial dispensationalist view. The second position is called historic premillennialism. Historic premillennialism. It's very similar in many of the conclusions in as regards to the second coming, the 1,000-year reign of Christ, in the Great Tribulation. Their, their difference in view is when the rapture will have come. And there's some conclusions about Israel that they would disagree on as well. The historic premillennial is actually one of the oldest positions on the end times. Going back to our church fathers, held by several uh, reliable men, faithful men such as Charles Spurgeon, held a historic premillennial Position. So very similar in some aspects to the dispensationalist. The third position is the post-millennialist. I told y'all, guys, just buckle up, all right? We're almost there, and then you can unbuckle and relax for a moment. The, first, uh, the third is the post-millennial position. They believe that the second coming of Jesus actually comes after the 1,000-year reign of Christ. They believe that Christ will come after a 1,000-year reign. Now, this is where things get a little fuzzy because they don't believe in a literal 1,000 years. And they don't believe that there's a certain event that will usher in the reign of Christ. And here's what they believe about this reign of Christ. They believe that this 1,000-year reign is a period when people are acceptable to the gospel. And as the gospel is proclaimed, politics, economic systems, and peace will be greatly influenced by Christians. Now, before you judge this position, and maybe even think this seems a little bit like the prosperity gospel, I want to warn you, that is not their intent and aim. They believe that the gospel message will impact cities, will impact jobs, which these are things we hopeful, hope for. And it's actually been a position that's held by many individuals. As far as the Matthew 24, verses 15 through 26 in the Great Tribulation, they believe that's historic, not future. The Great Tribulation that Jesus speaks about, they hold that that is the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. If you go back in historical books, Josephus is one, and you read the description of what happened in AD 70, and you were involved in that moment, you would think the world was ending. It is some of the most evil and saddest events that human history has ever seen, and possibly this is a bold statement, far worse than anything else the Jews had ever encountered in history. So the post-millennial believes that Matthew 24, verses 15 through 26, refers to that historical event. 
So that's the post-millennial. There are many individuals that I love and respect, many Puritans held to this position, such as John Owen, the New England pastor uh, Jonathan Edwards holds to a po- or held to a post-millennial position. The fourth and the simplest of them all is the all-millennial position, the all-millennial. And all that is is there's an A before the millennial, and that is not, okay? And it's not that they don't believe that there's a millennial. It's just that they don't believe it's a literal thousand years like the post-millennial. But here's what they believe. When Christ ascended into heaven and was seated at the right hand of God, his reign began. And his second coming will usher in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the only event they're waiting for is the return of Jesus Christ. They hold to the same position that uh, Matthew 24, 15 through 26 is a historical event in regards to the great tribulation. A lot of individuals, uh, especially in the Reformed arena, have held to this position. Augustine is one of the first that we know that held to an all-millennial position. John Calvin also held to an all-millennial position. Let me give you four names. John MacArthur, John Piper, Josh Bice, James White. These are four living men who have very successful ministries, very successful pulpits, who have faithfully preached the gospel for many years. Men I have personally gleaned from. Men that would agree upon most of their theological convictions. Men that faithfully uh, hold to the inerrancy of Scripture. All four men hold to believer's baptism. But all four men defer when it comes to end times. And what does that tell us? Well, really, this tells us that this is a third-tier issue. A third-tier issue. And here's what I mean by that. We have first, second, and third-tier issues. First-tier issues retain or, uh, refer to things such as the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Word, the doctrine of the gospel. You can't fudge on these first-tier issues. If you oppose these first-tier issues, you might find yourself in heresy. Then you have your second-tier issues, such as ecclesiology, Lord's Supper, baptism. And then finally, your third-tier, which would be things such as end times. Meaning, we can be a whole body here gathered together And there can be someone on the same pew that holds a different position and we can still have fellowship. So I say that in regards to the fact that there are many different approaches to this text. And it's very difficult to to pinpoint for you this morning without giving you my own personal preference on which route you should take on that. But I would encourage you to study, to read. So where would I first direct you. Well, the first place I would direct you is to Wayne Grudem's Bible Doctrine. This is a book that we've actually used in many of our equipped classes in years past. At the last portion of the, uh, the doctrinal book, he focuses on the doctrine of the future. In chapter 31 and 32, he clearly defines and explains 
all four points I just gave you. And he gives scriptures that he cites as well. It's very easy and accessible, and it just gets the ball rolling for you. There are others out there, but here's the problem. Others are bent towards a particular position. And if you're easily convinced, you might just do it just because. I gave you a list of four men that I love greatly, and all four disagree on that. All four have, have same, shared the same platform at conferences. This is a challenging work, and it's a noble and worthy task because Christ is coming, isn't he? And we want to know. We want to be aware. We want to be ready for the return of Christ. And so these men have laid the work. This is a wonderful uh, book to get you started and to get you in that direction. But let me end this point on the tribulation with this. Though there's different opinions, all four agree that there will be great and severe tribulation in this life before the second coming of Christ. Whether that's one particular event or several events throughout the history of time, there are times when great tribulation occurs. And it's actually a reality that we can't escape as well. We have no idea what the days ahead of us will look like, but we do know that Christ will come. And prior to his coming, there's a great tragedy. There's sometimes in church history that we can read of events and periods that we think, oh, wow, that is great tribulation. Let me read for you a moment. Someone recalling the persecution in the early church. Rome was the source of this tribulation and persecution. The Romans prided themselves on their violent death games in the arena, but they reserved the empire's most brutal methods of death for the Christians. Five of the most brutal that we know of were as following. Burning. Many Christians were put to death by being burned alive, a punishment that was intended for arsonists. Dismemberment. Some Christians were sentenced to be divided into four, a punishment many traitors were sentenced to. Third, eaten by lions. One of the most common ways to execute Christian martyrs was by throwing them to lions, a punishment usually reserved for the empire's most heinous crimes, such as murder and stealing. Last or fourth, crucifixion. One of the Romans' preferred methods of execution consisted of nailing victims to a wooden cross. Thirst took the life of the crucified man after several days of hanging. The Romans considered the punishment one of the worst, and it was typically used against rebels. Fifth, condemned to the mines. It says, one of the mildest punishments for Christians was to be sent to the mines of Rome. Here the condemned man worked underground for the rest of his days. Brutal persecution. You might even say great tribulation. There's going to be times and seasons in the life of believers where some maybe geographically, but persecution will arise. Paul reminds us of that in 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
So whatever persecution or tribulation comes our way, we can hope in knowing that tribulation comes before the second coming of Christ while we endure. Second point, and we'll fly through these next three pretty quickly. The next is the cosmos. If you're in Matthew 24, you'll see there at the second part of 29, and the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So after the tribulation, the cosmos will be directly affected. The question is, what is the significance of the sun and moon and stars and the powers of the heavens occurring? I think in context, there's a contrast. In the previous verses, Jesus says there's going to be many that will come in my name. But there would never be a sign that accompanied them. There is no mistake to either the believer or the unbeliever that Christ has come. The sun, the moon, the stars. I believe this is a literal experience of the, of the source of light being cut off all at once. For the unbeliever creating chaos and fear. Because this is the day of the Lord. And Zephaniah 1.14-16 says, The great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. There are several instances in the Old Testament in depicting a day of judgment with the sun, moon, and stars being listed, it being darkened or fallen. If you would, turn with me to Isaiah 13. Isaiah 13. We're going to look at two in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, verses 9 through 11. Isaiah is using this imagery here to foretell the fall of Babylon, this day of judgment. We could go out further, leading all the way back up to verse 6, or to go down a little bit further, but we'll keep with these verses. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it, for the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will put I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. A coming judgment is before them. Ezekiel 32, if you want to turn there with me. We just read through this in our Bible reading not too long ago. Ezekiel 32, in verses 7 through 8, Ezekiel is using the same imagery of the sun, moon, and stars going dark in regards to the judgment that would come on Pharaoh and Egypt. 
He says, when I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your hand, declares the Lord God. The day of the Lord is coming. And the cosmos will be drastically impacted by it, literally. The source of light will be darkened or fall from sky. I mean, just imagine the effects, knowing what we know about even the tide and the moon and its purposes. Everything will be swung out of control. It'll be disastrous for the unbeliever. It'll be dark and gloomy for those who have denied Christ. The cosmos. We know from Scripture that it is truly the heavens and the earth that will be, be destroyed by fire. Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3, 7, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I mean, another image that we have here is not only the darkness and shining the light of the Son of Man as He comes. He's coming in power and glory. This is a direct contrast between His first coming. Lowly and humble, being born in a stable, being placed in a manger, being rebuked, being made fun of, being beaten and flogged and killed in the most uh, despicable way. The king of kings, his first coming was not in the glory we anticipated, but his second coming, he's coming in power and glory and judgment. And the cosmos will be that sign for us. As the sun is darkened, as the stars begin to fall, as the moon is hid, this is the events that come about. And that's where we get into the two responses, really. Two individuals that are impacted. The tribes, we'll look at them first, and then the elect. Going back to Matthew 24. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Just quickly, some debate on what that sign is. Obviously, it's the sign of the cosmos falling before us. Here he is before us, the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Power and great glory, a tribe. A tribe is a subgroup of a nation which is regarded as being more closely related biologically uh, than the entire nation. So you have nations and you have tribes, and in those tribes they have their own languages. Uh, not necessarily something we resonate with here as much here in America, but this in, especially in other groups. So every single nation of the world will be impacted by the coming of Jesus Christ. This is something that's not isolated to one geographical area. All the world will know at that point and see the Son of Man. All of mankind and the tribes will mourn. Mourning, literally, this is speaking to a cut, a sharp-edged instrument, but can also refer to the beating of the chest. Mourning. Why? Why are they mourning? 
This is speaking about the unrighteous, the unbeliever. Because at that moment, there is a recognition of who truly Jesus is. Paul highlights this in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee at that moment will bow down no matter what happened beforehand. Unbeliever, believer, righteous, unrighteous, all will acknowledge, yes, that is the Son of God. But mourning because they know judgment is before them. Some will interpret this tribes to mean the 12 tribes of Israel. I think it's broader than that. But yes, the Jew who was refused to recognize Jesus Christ as the true Messiah will recognize in that moment, we have erred. He is the Son of God. The Gentile who refuses to see their sin and the holy God and this beautiful gift at that point will mourn because they know judgment is before them. This is a heavy, heavy day for those outside of Christ. Paul writes about this extensively in First and Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 1, he speaks about their diligence in remaining faithful, reminding them throughout the whole book that they haven't missed the Christ. He hasn't returned, but he goes to this judgment day and he speaks about the occurrence and what will be revealed as the angels come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And what a wonderful transition. There are some that will mourn that day because judgment will come. And there will be others that will rejoice and marvel at his coming. And I pray that's the group that you're in this morning. The elect, in verse 31, says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. These four winds, north, east, south, west, all directions, his elect living at that time, the dead in Christ will be raised. This is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's joyful. It's a joyful time. It's a family reunion like we've never experienced before. And the head of the table is Jesus Christ, our prize. It's a coming that we're longing for as believers in Jesus Christ. There was a period of my childhood where we lived outside of the wonderful city of Palestine, Texas. Those six years we lived in Mesquite, and I remember as a child driving into Palestine, markers in Palestine on Highway 19, as we passed that, I thought, oh, we're here, we're coming to Nanny's house, I'm going to see my cousin, I'm going to see my grandparents, longing to see my family, that great desire to fellowship with them. 
Oh, it's such a beautiful thing to consider. All the body of Christ, past, present, and present, past and present, there together with Jesus Christ, all at once. What a wonderful day that will be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We should not all sleep, but we should all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishably, and we shall be changed. It's a day we long await for, long await for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to ask the question, what do we do in light of this day? Well, our whole lives should be lived in light of the second coming of Christ. One pastor wrote, Yet, not knowing the day or the hour when he will come again, we are to live every moment to the fullest, going about our divinely mandated task of fulfilling culture mandates, marrying, raising our families, fulfilling our callings, and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what should we do? We should work. Came across a hymn entitled, We Will Work Till Jesus Comes. First line and chorus go, O land of rest, for thee I sigh. When will the moment come when I shall lay my armor by and dwell in peace at home? The chorus, we'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. Such a wonderful longing. We'll work. I just want to leave you with a few things as we dismiss. First, we work with urgency. Believer, we work with urgency. God has stewarded us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to be faithful with that gospel. The reality of this message hit me yesterday morning as I thought about my children and the great desire to see all of them call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ before he comes. The urgency of the gospel taking root in lives. We proclaim it with boldness and urgency. And if you're in this room and yet to call upon him for salvation, it's urgent. Call upon him in faith and repentance. Call upon him. We live with, we work with urgency. We work with hot love for Jesus Christ. Back in verse 12 of chapter 24, he mentions that some will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold during tri tribulation, during persecution. We don't want that to be our hearts. We want to stoke our hearts with, fire, with, with kindling that will be lit. We want to be in the word and remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is the, the ultimate prize. We want to work with hot love. We want to work with wa watchfulness. 
Work with watchfulness. We do not want to be caught up in the world. We don't want the world to be the prize. We don't want the things that we can acquire to gain our time and attention. We want Christ. We work with watchfulness knowing he's coming again. We work with hope knowing that Jesus will return and we long to wait to be with him. Some of us have lost dear ones. Some of us are mourning the loss of dear ones. Some of us are walking through tribulation and pain and suffering and turmoil and temptation. And we're longing for the relief of being before Christ Jesus. So we work with hopefulness and we work with peace. Knowing that no matter what tomorrow brings, no matter the pain, no matter the persecution... No matter the sorrow, we know he's coming again. Knowing that he knows that day. God knows when the end will be. J.C. Ryle, the individual that we're reading together, he comments on this. Second coming, he says, The second personal coming of Christ will be as different as possible from the first. He came the first time as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. He was born in the manger of Bethlehem in lowliness and humiliation. He took the very nature of a servant and was despised and not esteemed. He was betrayed into the hands of wicked men, condemned by an unjust judgment, mocked, flogged, crowned with thorns, and at last crucified between two thieves. He will come the second time as the king of all the earth. With the royal majesty, the princes and great men of this world will themselves stand before his throne to receive an eternal sentence. Before him, every mouth shall be silenced and every knee bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. John ends the book of Revelation with Jesus' words saying, I'll come again. And John responds with, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ and salvation that is found in him. Father, my heart breaks this morning knowing that there are individuals in this room that have yet to repent and believe in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, this isn't just a decision about Father, a moment or a week or a day, we're speaking about eternity. I pray that the weightiness of a coming judgment would weigh heavy on their minds and heart and that you'd call them unto salvation. I pray that they would repent and believe today, knowing that coming judgment is eternal and set and will not be undone. For the believer in the room, I pray our hearts will be comforted knowing that Christ will return. Whatever tribulation we might experience in this life, I pray that our heart is set to looking forward to that second coming. I pray that we work in a way that reflects that longing to be with him. Father, I pray during this season as we we reflect on the first and we hope for the second coming. I pray that we look to Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.